So we're working at letting our light shine in the darkness. And um, I don't know about you, but for me personally, that can sometimes be a real challenge to um, really let God work through me. Now, there's some people that it's pretty easy for me to let God work through, right? I mean, each one of you, obviously, right? Easy for me to be nice to you and share the love of Jesus with you all. But I'll just make an admission to you that there is a group of people um, that I just struggle with letting the light shine to them out of my life. And it's people who are so ideologically opposed to everything that I hold dear. It's almost like they feel like they're the enemy to me. You know, their beliefs or their values or even how they live their life. And it's like when Jesus says to let your light shine before everyone, I just I struggle with that particular group of people who is so very different in so many ways than I happen to be. What I'd rather do, right, is I'd rather point my finger at them or I would rather tell them where they're wrong or how they're seeing life in, a, in an incorrect way. I'd rather, you know, shun them or even just have nothing to do with that group of people. Because when I think about letting the light shine out of my life, it just feels so passive with people that I so much disagree with. Now, some of you kind of understand that because you have some of those people in your life. When you have a conversation, maybe it's somebody at work, and they're so very different from you in how you believe and how you view the world and even how they live their life, it's just like... I, you know, being a light to them, it just is so confusing. Or for some, maybe it's your extended family, right? And you get together for those family reunions, and it's like, oh, man, here comes Uncle Joe. I don't want to have a conversation with him, right? Because you just, every, you're so different. But then even for some of you, you've discovered that some of those people are in your immediate family, people you love dearly. But when you begin to have a conversation with them, it's like, they look at life so very different from you. It just, being a light to them is challenging. What, what, you, what we tend to think about is, you know what? If I don't tell them where they're wrong, who else is going to tell them? If I don't point out where they're incorrect, well, who else is going to do that? If I don't provide the guidance they need, who else is going to do that? And we again feel like being a light just is so passive. How can that have any kind of an impact on people? Which causes us to ask the question, so what really draws people to a light in the darkness? What really causes someone to go towards a light when they find themselves in a dark place? And we really discover the answer to that in the teachings of Jesus, but also in the lifestyle of Jesus. Because what we discover is that the people who were in the darkest of places were the people who were drawn the most to Jesus Christ. And so today we are um, finishing up a series simply entitled Glow. We are being challenged through the teaching and the words of Jesus Christ to let our light shine to everyone. And so one of the things you discover, because we're in the Gospel of Luke this whole year, we're just digging in at different places in the Gospel of Luke, and one of the things you discover about Jesus is that the way he lived his life and the way he taught, 
demonstrated the fact that he had an expectation of those of us who were his followers, and that is that we will be a light in a dark place to those people who desperately need Jesus Christ. And so, you know, last week we talked about the fact that he compared us to seed. Some of you are kale seed, right? And to yeast, right? Something small becomes something so influential as to completely change from a tiny thing to something that is growing huge. And so today, what we come face to face with are those people that we wrestle with and we struggle with. How do I learn to love those people? How do I learn to love people like that in such a way that I am willing to be a light to them in a very dark place? And so in our passage today, which we're in Luke chapter 15, Jesus encounters a group of people who really should have known better. They should have been the kind of people that showed the love of God, but instead, this group of people, these religious leaders, the religious folk of the day, right, um, what they did to the people who were in the darkness is they pointed the finger at them, and they sneered at them, and they offered disdain to them, and they basically shunned them in such a way that they never wanted to have anything to do with God. And so what Jesus does in this encounter he has with them is he tells three different stories, all for the purpose of demonstrating the priority of those who are lost in darkness, and even more than that, the great love that our Heavenly Father has for those people who are lost in the darkness. And so what we learn is the way to be a light is to show the kind of love that God our Father has for all of those people. And so here's our key, here's where we're going today, and that is simply this, to let your light shine in the darkness. In other words, to be that light in a dark place, what do we have to do? We must love those people who are lost in darkness. And so Jesus gives us this very simple visual picture, see if I can keep it from going out, there we go, of us being a light in the dark place. But to do that, we've got to show the love that God has shown to us. And so I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 15, all right? Luke chapter 15. Now, it's difficult for me to imagine that there were people in well, in any day and age, that did not love Jesus Christ. And there's a whole group of people that they just, and they just didn't want to be around Jesus. They condemned Jesus. They pointed the finger at Jesus. But Jesus has a lot of encounters with these people, all right? Um, several different times, they're the Pharisees or the religious leaders. They were the church-going folk, right? They were the teetotalers. They were the rule followers. They were the people who, you know, felt like they deserved to be in God's presence because of the way they lived their life. And so here's the encounter that Luke sets up for us. This is Luke 15, beginning in verse 1. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, I like how Eugene Peterson in the message puts it. Here's how he says this particular verse. But by this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. The Pharisees and religion scholars were not pleased, no, not at all pleased. They growled, 
He takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. People with doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus. So they would be characterized by the kind of people who didn't want to have anything to do with God. The kind of people who didn't like to hang around religious folk because of the way they made them feel. Um, These were the kind of people that really lived a life that was just opposed to all the things that God wanted them to have lived in their life. They, I mean, today, if we were to call out tax collectors and sinners, I wonder what group of people that might represent today. Who would be the tax collectors and sinners? Maybe it would be the divorced or the atheist. Maybe it would be the media or a beggar who's on the side of the street asking for a handout. Maybe it would be someone who's a part of the LGBTQ crowd or a Muslim. I mean, who would that be for you? Who would be the tax collectors and sinners that basically want to have nothing to do with God and we have a really hard time being around people like that? And so Jesus looks at these guys who didn't want to be around the tax collectors and sinners, and he tells three different stories. Now, the first two stories are pretty similar. They're stories about something was lost, a search was made, and when it was found, there was a great party and celebration. So story number one tells us about the first thing that was lost. So look at verse 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? So what is the first thing that is lost? Thank you very much. The first thing that is lost is sheep. And so what does the owner of the sheep do? In one sense, he's pretty irresponsible because he leaves the other 99 and he goes after just the one sheep. Now, we don't know what he does with the other 99 because, you know, Jesus doesn't tell us. What we do know is he leaves them, and he goes after the one, and when he finds the one, he throws a party. Then the second story, look at what he says in verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And so the second thing that is lost is what? A coin. All right. Now, To us, that kind of seems insignificant, but probably to this particular woman, this represented a big part of her life savings, those 10 coins. So what does she do? She drops everything she's doing, and she begins to clean and search until she finds the coin. And at the conclusion of both of those two stories, what did they do? They throw a party. They celebrate. And then here is how Jesus, at the end of those two stories, gives the conclusion. Look what he says in verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. And then look down in verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The picture is very clear that heaven rejoices when a sinner comes home. And so that's why Jesus spent all of his time on this earth searching for those who are lost in the darkness. And so what is valuable to our Heavenly Father? One sinner who's lost. One person who's not home. 
So then he tells a third story, which has a lot more of an emotional pull to it, right? It's a story about a father and two sons. We, we oftentimes know, uh, call this the prodigal son. It's a very well-known story, even if you don't know where it's found or that it's even found in Scripture. But probably it would be better to, um, named not the prodigal son, but probably the loving father or the forgiving father, because it's really a story about the father and his love for his son. And it's also a story that invites us to figure out where do we fit in? Where, where am I in this story? You know, am I in the role of the father? Am I in the role of a bystander? Am I in the role of the lost son? Am I in the role of the elder brother? It really forces you to kind of have to say, okay, where am I at when Jesus is telling this particular story? So look what he says beginning in verse 11 of Luke 15. Jesus continues, so this is story number three. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. So Jesus is telling this story again to these religious leaders, and he's telling the story about a son who comes to his father, says, I want my share of the inheritance. We have no idea how old he is, but one thing we do know is dad is not dead yet, right? Most of the time you don't get the inheritance until dad has died. Is that true, girls? Is dad giving you the inheritance yet? No, not yet. So we have to wait till Terry's dead here. So dad hasn't died, right? Sorry, Terry. You can, you can handle it. You can handle it. And so son comes to him, and you, you begin to get the idea, that's a little self-centered, right? That's a little bit selfish there. He comes to him, asks for the inheritance, and then the father does a very foolish thing. The father gives him his share of the inheritance. And in our minds, we're thinking, something bad's going to happen, and it does. What does he do? He takes it, and he leaves, right? He leaves home, he goes far from home, and what he also does is he squanders all that. I mean, just stupid, idiotic, foolish living that probably all of us either would do or possibly have done in our life. And then what always happens is, he, when you run out of stuff, when you have nothing left, when you have no one left in your life, the difficult circumstances of life, which always come, seem to be ten times worse when you're in that kind of position. But what's interesting about the story that Jesus tells is the attitude of this younger son. You know, when you go low enough, eventually you realize, my choices are stupid. I need to go back home to the Father. He, he comes to his senses. And there's a great picture here about what it looks like to repent. The attitude that's necessary, even the choices that are necessary. He even rehearses this whole speech that he's going to give to dad. But the key of the repentance is what? That he comes back home to the father, or decides to at least. But the story, the focus, though the repentance of the son is important to learn from, the, the focus of the story is the open-handed, loving generosity of this father. This father who allows his son to leave, which is a picture of our heavenly father, who gives him a part of the inheritance and provides so many good things in their life. Look what it says, Jesus' story beginning in verse 20. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And the son said, Father, here's a part of his speech, right? I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. If there is no other picture of our heavenly father that you get, this one is so crucial. And every parent understands this, don't we? If you have a kid, you understand the love that the father had for this son. That's why it has such emotional attachment to it, right? That's why it's so significant. Now, we've been having fun, chaotic fun, but we've been having fun over the last week because our kids are here. In fact, my kids are sitting out here and in this room and grad kids in the back. So here's a picture, right? So we took, that's the for publication picture, right? That's what you use. Now, the next picture here, though, is what we're really like as a family. Here's the next picture with grandkids with Papa and Nini there, right, doing good. And then again, here's the true picture of all of us, crazy. But I, I tell you, as a, as a parent and as a grandparent, I understand this story. I understand a father who's looking, waiting for his child to come home. The love that that he has. I mean, it just pulls on your heart to recognize how God sees all his children, all those who are lost. Either these religious leaders did not have kids or they just had so, grown so hard in their heart. I can just picture them as Jesus is telling the story, as he begins to talk about this father. I can just see these religious leaders thinking, what a fool that father is. You don't reward rebellion by throwing a party, right? You condemn them. You punish them. You make sure that they know exactly what they did was wrong, and they completely and totally understand that. And in this culture of shame, which really was true in that particular culture there, you know, this son had disgraced his family. I mean, that was complete and total disgrace, the choices that he made and was willing to make. And I'm sure in their minds, they're thinking to themselves, you know what? First of all, you shouldn't have given the money. But secondly, you should disown a son who disgraces you like that. And sadly, that's the picture I think those religious leaders had of our Father in heaven. That that's how he viewed every person who went away from the home. And sadly, I'm afraid that that's the attitude of a lot of churches. In fact, it's what sadly keeps many lost people away from finding the joy of forgiveness from God because of the attitude and the demeanor of those of us who are a part of the church. And in their minds, they have some kind of picture, whether real or make-believe, that if they would ever come back, they would only have somebody point the finger and say, well, you change first, you get cleaned up first, and then you'll be able to come back here. And a finger of, accu of accusation and condemnation rather than 
this love of a heavenly father. And then the response of the elder brother in this story, it really, really bothers me. And the reason it bothers me, because I wonder, is that me? Do I have that kind of an attitude towards people who are away from God, who don't know him? And sadly, the answer sometimes would be, yeah, I I do. And you look at the response of this elder brother, you know, so he comes home, party's happening, he asks another servant, what's going on there? And he says, well, your brother has come home, and we're throwing a party, your dad's throwing a party for him, and he refuses to come in. And so what happens, dad comes out to him and tries to invite him in. But as you look at the attitude of this elder brother here, what you begin to recognize is, number one, he can't see his own sin, right? I've stayed around. I've served you faithfully. I've not done anything wrong. You also notice there how he exaggerates the sin of other people. You know, that happens to us as well. Well, this son of yours, he doesn't even claim him. This son of yours has squandered everything in terrible kinds of living. He's brought disgrace to our name. He fails to grasp the joy of an ongoing relationship with his father who loves him dearly. He, he misses out on the grace that none of this stuff belongs to him. It's all his because of the grace of his Father in heaven. But then notice the words that dad gives back to this elder son. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. We had to celebrate. So how can I learn to not have that attitude of the older brother? What can I do to make sure that I learn to love people that for me at times is so very difficult to love? I think the first thing is I've got to repent of my own pride. I mean, it's so easy to feel like I have what I have, forgiveness, because, you know, I've, I've done something to deserve that. I mean, that's just absolutely false. Inclusion in the family is not because I've earned it or I'm a hard worker or I am somehow living an exemplary life. Inclusion in the family comes because of a relationship. The Father has invited me, even though I don't deserve it, to be a part of His family. And when I say yes to that invitation, I have no right to exclude any others who are a part of God's family. I think the second thing is I've got to remember my own lostness. If it wasn't for the sacrifice of Jesus, I would have no hope. I can't do anything to deserve that. Someone else has taken the time in their life to be a light to me. Many people actually for me. And the same is true for you. Someone has been a light to you so that you would be able to find your way out of the darkness But we were lost as well. In fact, Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 21, he says, once you were alienated, this is all of us, from God, and you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. That's the position we were in when Jesus Christ went to the cross for you and for me. And I think this remembering my own lostness and the grace of God is so profound. And then 
The final thing is this. I think we need to pray to our Father in heaven that he would give us a change of heart. God, soften my heart for you. Help me to be the kind of person who loves others like you have loved me. Someone who will show that kind of compassion that the Father in our story has shown to them. Some of the lost we do love, right? Because they're in your family, right? They're your kids or your grandkids or they're your parents or they're your neighbors. Some of, some of those lost people we do love. But all lost people God loves because he, they are his children. That's how he views every single person even the person who is in the darkest of places in their life. So a couple of questions I think are good to wrestle with is this one. Where am I most prone to exclude other people? In what environment, with what group, and do I tend to be most prone to having that kind of exclusionary attitude towards them? And then I need to ask myself the question, What in my life really draws people in the darkness to the light? What really draws people in the light? Is it that pointing, accusatory, condemning kind of attitude towards others, get yourself cleaned up and then you can come? Or is it the example of Jesus Christ? Because again, being a light, it just seems so passive. It just sits there. But it's not passive, but powerful when we put our trust in Jesus Christ and live the way Jesus wants us to live. So I was having a conversation with one of the guys of our church this week. His mother just passed away just a few days before that. And he realized, as we were talking, he realized, um, you know, his younger brother, Because now his dad's already gone, now his mother is gone, he may hardly ever see him again. You know how families are sometimes, right? And he's like, I just realized I really want him to know about the love of Christ. And he shared some before, but this guy had the courage to speak up to his brother. And he didn't feel like he said anything good at all. You know how we all feel when we try to talk to someone about Jesus. Like, it doesn't seem to come out right. But I think, I, I... Long for the kind of courage that this guy in our church showed to his brother. And the reason he showed, had that courage is because it was his brother whom he loves dearly. He wants to see, be able to find the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And so for us to be the kind of light that God needs in our life, we have got to learn to love those who are lost in darkness. Lord, help me to have that love.